Hello there, and welcome to the Healthy London podcast. In particular, welcome to the homeless health version of the Healthy London podcast from the Healthy London Partnership. We are 15 months since the start of the COVID pandemic. An awful lot has happened in the world of homeless health, and we're restarting this series. And what we want to do is make sure that we're putting together something that's accessible to all in uh, health and social care. So we're going to try and avoid too much jargon. We want to try and break a few myths and we want to bring some fresh perspectives and we want to have some honest conversations as well. My name's James Thornton. I'm the Deputy Communications Lead at the Healthy London Partnership. Be joined today by two excellent guests. So we have Lisa Collins, who's our own Deputy Director of Homeless Health, and also by Dr Al Storey, who's the clinical lead from London's Find and Treat service. He'll tell you a bit more about his role, many and varied there, as is Lisa's. So in London right now, we've got about 3,500 people in temporary accommodation and about 600 people sleeping rough. And unfortunately, a great deal more in the greyer area, as I think. So staying at friends or at risk once some of the eviction bans end. According to some calculations, that's uh, 13 times more, that kind of hidden homeless figure. So I think that's enough to fill a pretty hefty football stadium as we're in the middle of the Euros at the moment. And if you think 600 rough sleepers is not a huge number for a city like London, I was thinking about this earlier on and thought, well, there's about, well, I don't know, 30 London boroughs. So what does that give us? About 20 people in each borough. So that's the England team or the Scotland team or the Welsh team, plus the bench, plus the coaches all dotted about. That's uh, one way that brought it home to me in uh, sort of fairly simplistic sporting terms. OK, and um, Lisa, you've come to us reasonably recently at HLP. Uh, you've got a sort of strong and varied background in the NHS and I know you've got some interesting perspectives because not everyone um, of course is as close to homeless health as, as Al and colleagues or even myself for the last year but um, keen to know a bit about your background and also what you your vision for this mini-series of the uh, of the Homeless Health podcast is going to be. So why don't you tell us a bit about your background, your career, and, and what you think that maybe some of us, the owls of this world who are quite close to this world, need to kind of bear in mind and what we might what we might achieve here with this. Thanks, James. Um, yeah, so my name's Lisa Collins, and I've been in the NHS for 30 years uh, as a health service manager, and I've worked across many hospitals in London, looking at transformation across different services. And what I found really fascinating when I came into this team was how homeless health had never really been on my radar over those 30 years. The first time it really came onto my radar I was a general manager in medicine. So managing the front door and during the winter, obviously one of the most important things that we're tasked to do is to make sure that we are discharging patients out of beds in order to allow patients coming in through A&E to access beds. And I remember having a conversation with the nurse director who was part of my team. Um, 
And the conversation came up about homeless patients. And I said, but what actually happens? How, how can you discharge a homeless patient to the street after you've looked after them for two weeks? As a clinician, that must be really, really difficult. And her response to me was, well, it's a lifestyle choice. And that always stayed with me. And coming into this role, I started to think about it a little more and I started to hear different other comments. Um, another comment was, you know, we don't want to turn into a nanny state and tell people what to do. I also had a conversation and relayed the it's a lifestyle choice message to um, a colleague in St Mungo's. And she said, out of all the 30 years that she's been working with thousands of people on the street, she said, never once have they said it's a lifestyle choice. It might be the only choice that they think that they have, but it certainly is not a lifestyle choice that people choose. Mm -hmm. So that then got me thinking about the stories that we tell ourselves. And I think importantly, the stories that clinicians maybe tell themselves to sleep at night, because how can you as a clinician, when you're altruistic and you're giving and you're caring, look after a patient and then discharge them with the black plastic bag out onto a park bench? which is clearly the, the message that I got given when, when I was in that in that role. And it, it really bothered me. So I guess I'm coming from a perspective of the stories that we tell ourselves. And I think that's the vision for this podcast series. And I really want to have that real conversation and look at things from multiple different angles and not have the, the uh, you know, no disrespect to the NHS because I've been in it for 30 years, but the typical NHS response to some of these things which can be a bit dry and a bit heavy on statistics which of course we need to have but I'm much more interested in the in the human in the person and really kind of like helping other people like me who've been in the NHS for a long time who've yeah. never really thought about homeless health I guess we'll hear more from Al in a minute who's really on the cold face with this but for many other clinicians and, and health service managers they don't see this as not part of their remit. And for my, in my mind, it should be part of everybody's understanding. When you work in healthcare, this is a patient group that we cannot turn a blind eye to. So, um, yeah, that's that's my vision for the series. And I hope that's enough of information on me, Bum. No, thank, thank you, Lisa. And I think it is really interesting points. And again, the, the lifestyle choice thing is something I think we've all uh, we've all heard a lot of. Um, I don't have the stat to hand, unfortunately. We'll put it in the notes for the podcast. But uh, Alicia from our team was talking about, as we're in Pride Month, the amount of people from the LGBTQ plus community that have experienced homelessness in one way or another, and it's 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 shockingly high. And again, you know, what what, a part, what about that? What does that tell us? And again, without the research to hand, I imagine that says that there's people who need to find their own accommodation because others aren't accepting of their lifestyle. Is that a lifestyle choice? I, I really don't think so. I think it's just personal freedom. Mm. There we are. Um, we'll get into that as we go through the uh, conversation. Um, Al, before I introduce you, I suppose in very simple terms, for those who've not uh, been close to this, we're 15 months into the since the start of the pandemic, roughly, and there has been tremendous, tremendous, tremendous work achieved, including not least by your team. Um, there's been the everybody in push. There was funding from the government. I know that we've all been part of a programme with the Greater London Authority where we had about 1,200 people in uh, various hotel accommodations and then local authorities uh, even more than that. I think it was about another three and a half thousand. Um, I'm not going to steal your thunder because you can give us the detail, but in headline terms, 
people inside, restored a lot of dignity to people, kept them safe, certainly saved a huge amount of lives and enabled us to do other good stuff, um, sort of sexual health screening, get people jabbed for COVID, check they've even got it, all the rest of it. And again, that's really, really simplifying it. But Al, why don't you tell us a bit about, well, explain more about your own professional background, because I've only talked a little bit about Find and Treat, but tell us about a bit about also what Find and Treat do, and then we'll um, we'll get some thoughts from you from the, from the last year. So over to you, Dr. Al. Certainly, thanks, James. So I've got a bit of a portfolio career, and I mean, I I came to um, you know, public health really through through the lens of displaced populations in conflict. Um, you know, working for uh, UN agencies and a number of NGOs for for many years, and I came back to the UK and um, started working. Um, so I've got a minor obsession with infectious diseases. Started working in and in tuberculosis prevention and control in London and um, very quickly um, very well very quickly realized you don't need to travel the world to um, you know, experience people who are in extreme hardship. Um, the the TB is a very interesting lens to look at the world through and um, you know in London it was really a disease that's characterized by you know its shift from the general population into um, populations who are um, experiencing, you know, quite serious exclusion, and the consequences of that exclusion, um, which is sort of driven by, you know, predominantly socio-economic factors. Um, mm. The consequence of that exclusion is that, you know, poor housing, overcrowding, no housing, you know, stress, weakened immunity, etc. And so TB finds its niche, you know, where people are down on their luck, and mm. It, we didn't really have a good handle on it in in London at that time. So you know, we, I I partnered up with um, uh, a chap called Andrew Hayward, who I've you know worked with ever since, and we we were um, very fortunate to work with uh, you know services across London and undertake a very large cohort study, which really started to shine a very bright light on you know who's really being affected by this disease, <clears throat> and um, lo and behold, and as corroborated you know internationally. You know, by far the highest rates of disease that we ever saw were in amongst people who are homeless and particularly amongst people who are rough sleeping. So, you know, th this is an interesting lens, isn't it? Because, you know, TB for me is a social disease with some interesting medical consequences. And also it starts to really sort of, you know, in terms of a public health perspective, it starts to really draw into rather sharp focus, you know, what we as health professionals could and should be doing. Mm. Um, so, I mean, just as a whistle-stop tour, for me, the lessons from TB when applied to, um, you know, health exclusion, the entire mm -hmm. inclusion health agenda, as it were, um, is really that, you know, we, we have to look at, you know, the, the looking at the individual is interesting, but looking at the individual, obviously, in the context of, you know, why have they got TB is important for the simple reason that um, it, you have to very quickly learn that you can diagnose somebody with TB, you can pop them full of pills, but if at the end of the day you just going to gently put them back in the gutter and claim that that's a cure. I think mm. you've, you've got to you've got to be honest with yourself. And, mm. you know, biomedicine's really tried to own the concept of cure, and mm. you know we 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 cling on to it. Um, mm. But in many cases, you know we 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 are managing symptomology or sterilizing mm. your body of a pathogen. You know the reality is cure is much much deeper. It's a far more social and cultural thing, and cure when applied to the concept of 
somebody who's got tuberculosis and is homeless or HIV or hep C or just mm. any chronic long-term health condition. You know, we have to really look at the concept of cure within the context of that individual. And for them, mm. it's about housing. It's about restoration of dignity. It's mm. about supporting long-term recovery, rebuilding links with family, with community. Mm. Um, you know, re rebuilding a sense of self-confidence and resilience. Um, homelessness doesn't happen to people randomly. You know, I mean, it's it's mm. very nice to try and raise money off the back of the idea that we're all two paychecks away and it could happen to anybody. But, you know, the reality is people, particularly people who are rough sleeping, aren't on the street because they've lost their key. And yeah. for many, many people that we work with, and I'm sure many of the listeners will know, you know, rough sleeping in particular is coming at the end of a very long and hard road and mm. for many that hard road begins with you know unfortunately let's say the accident of birth and you're, you're born into an <laughs> environment where you really don't get a fair opportunity to flourish and mm. you know the the, the 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 problems that start to stack up because yeah, uh, Al, you were saying sorry to, to jump in, but you made a nice quote when we were chatting earlier on that because um, people could be forgiven listening to us thinking, oh right, we, we need to house people, and when we're doing that, aren't we? But you were saying, you know, it, it's not a housing issue. So again, it, the the truth is somewhere in the middle, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, the truth is somewhere in the middle. I mean, we certainly do need to house people. I mean, as mm. was uh, very clearly uh, demonstrated by a pandemic. Um, you know, think back to you know before we undertook the, the world's largest global scientific collaboration and actually invented effective vaccines in less than 12 months, which which is quite mind blowing. But we had no vaccines and we had very, very poor understanding of this disease. And the government told everybody to stay at home because quite simply, we've learned historically from many other pandemics that home is the most protective thing you can have. It's very, very good for your health at home. Um, and it, it was, it just drew into rather stark um, glaring reality, uh, you know, the lives of people who didn't have one, um, mm. and 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 consequently, yeah, housing should, is um, critically important. Absolutely, and uh, I feel that we should, uh, in passing, mention uh, Professor Hayward, who you flagged up earlier on, who I think got quite a lot of grief for being the Sage Scrooge because he's on the Sage Committee for being so rude as to say that maybe getting together at Christmas might spread more COVID disease and uh, I think he was correct don't you so uh, I feel like we should we should give Andrew a nod there on the way past. He's um, certainly not alone in receiving you know some quite uh, <laughs> significant abuse yeah the, this yeah. this issue has really divided the country politically you know we were fractured anyway but this mm. country really is starting yeah. to seriously divide us. Okay so Let's before we go back to Lisa to talk about some of the work we've got planned at HLP and where, and then into the meteor stuff about what can we get done seriously in the next year. I'll tell us in real microcosm about what find and treat do. I think that'll be a real illustration for the for the listeners as to how it works. Well, find and treat was set up on the back of um, the observation that TB in homeless people was diagnosed too late. Um, they were they were dying of a preventable you know disease. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the reality is that, you know, for many issues in the NHS, we've become used to the idea of sitting in a nice, warm, comfortable building and mm -hmm. waiting for the problem, as we call mm -hmm. it, to come to us. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, I mean, I just was very clear that we had to learn um, from people's experience elsewhere and apply, you know, the amazing knowledge from New York, from 
our colleagues in the Netherlands, etc., who were far more proactive in trying to mm -hmm. tackle TB, mm -hmm. and they didn't just wait for it. So, um, way back in 2002, we borrowed one of the Dutch mobile health screening vans, uh, stuck it on a ferry, brought it over, screened in Arlington House in London and in Pentonville, and you know found um, plenty of active TB. And so, mm -hmm. just that project just demonstrated that it was out there and just waiting for um, waiting waiting for people was too late. So it literally started as an active case finding service uh, for um, predominantly people who are homeless, uh, experiencing homelessness with TB. And um, it was very good at finding TB cases, but unfortunately, you know, in the first two years we evaluated it and over half the cases that were diagnosed were lost um, mm. by, by the services. Because again, you know, the services are very sort of building based and it's, it's a very much you come to us model. Mm. So we, we pretty much built a service called Find and Lose, um, which I wasn't too proud of. Mm. Um, so we kind of learned from the um, the data, learned from our own experience, learned from the narratives, the qualitative insights. And w again, we cherry picked around the world to think, you know, well, what works in terms of a more proactive outreach model? Mm. And, you know, we designed a very multidisciplinary uh, frontline team, including people with lived experience, including people with social social work, social uh, qualifications and uh, mm. clinical nurse specialists, radiographers, technicians, you name it, and um, set about trying to see if we could do the whole pathway. Mm. And not only could we do that, <clears throat> it was very clear that, you know, one of the defining characteristics of people who've experienced, you know, quite severe and enduring exclusion is multiple morbidity. And so very often we were looking at people who had multiple chronic long-term conditions, maybe an infection, chronic, mm. um, undiagnosed, unmanaged mental health problems, mm. and you know, very often self-medicating, so an addiction issue on top. Um, so the you know the model was really quite perfectly adapted to manage anything mm. that you know we could engage people on. Mm. We saw you know the idea of proactively engaging people to the lens of health as an opportunity not just to sort of as i've said before sort of throw pills at people but no. you know to look at it as an opportunity to try and get them into a better place to mm -hmm. again stretch this concept of cure mm. and give it back to people um and in practical terms Al, i mean again just for and keeping the lay listener in mind here such as myself so I know this is not purely about outreach work and it's certainly not purely about street homelessness, but at the sharper end, there is that stuff, isn't it? There is still kind of you guys out there literally finding people, literally treating them it's, and sort of screening and testing and all the various um, environments that people experiencing homelessness find them in. But that, that's the case, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, along comes comes the global pandemic and mm. you know, we're a team that's basically cut its teeth trying to support people who have got an infectious aerosolized infection mm. um, and um, it, it's uh, it's it's got to be a public health and uh, uh, you know and an individual mm. health response so you know we we very quickly sort of um, decided that you know we've got to apply some basic principles here and Andrew and I sort mm. of authored that um, plan which was uh, you know triage test cohort care which was mm. adopted in many places um, across the UK and internationally, which is a great... Um, in classic COVID great... style and classic sorry. remote working, My someone's got a finger. <clears throat> That's me, sorry. Um, <laughs> Not at all. 
Not at all. Add to the, the, the live colour of this. Al, actually, that's quite a nice juncture because we're going to talk about um, that work in more detail in a little while. But Lisa, I'd like to bring you back in and um, not to put you too much on the spot, but uh, Healthy London Partnership, we work on behalf of NHS London and we work highly collaboratively with a number of partners whom I, I won't try and uh, list all of, but including the GLA and lots of third sector partners as well. Um, We've brought together a bit of a work plan that's still being formed up for the rest of this year and start of next in a very, very changing environment. But putting two hats on, if you wouldn't mind, um, can you give us a bit of an overview of the work that's planned and what we hope to achieve with it? And I suppose doing that through the lens of um, this podcast and your own vision coming into it in terms of what some of those myths might be that we're looking to debunk while we're achieving this work. And uh, I suppose what the people out there who aren't working on Home South all the time who might be listening to this might take away from it. That's a really big chunk, but we'll walk through it a bit and then let's see let's see where we where we go. Yeah, no problem. I'll give it a go. So <laughs> I guess what's been interesting just um, reflecting whilst we've been having this conversation uh, is, I guess, over the pandemic, a lot of housing has appeared, which has helped. But I guess it's also identified that housing isn't the answer. And we talked a little bit about this, didn't we, before we started recording? And I like what Al said about, you know, um, people who sleep rough had just haven't lost their keys. Um, and actually, we do look at this pathway of we need housing. But Al's absolutely right. This is this is about health. Housing is only one part of it. Of course, housing is going to help. But if we go back to my vision about this series as well, and this this all this all links in. I meant I wanted to mention earlier about addictions, because again, I think that's part of the story that we tell ourselves when we see people sleeping rough on the street, um, mm. as if people have a choice over addictions. Again, I, I do think you know that there is a general perception that addictions are a lifestyle choice and from what I've come to understand over the years is that it, you know addictions are a coping mechanism mm. so when it comes to the program for HLP we've got multiple work streams that we're looking to get up and running this year so we've got a primary care work stream mental health substance misuse uh, the patient voice um out of hospital step down but really they all interlink with each other so yeah. whilst we, whilst we've got different programs of work um it's about joining up those dots and this is where my program management solutionist mind comes in because first of all i'm asking the question why haven't we solved this already right this is a problem that we've known about for a long long time so part of me is thinking okay why haven't we cracked this one open and, and, and Lisa, to jump in, of course, the, the government is committed to, uh, to to ending homelessness in the in the next few years, of course. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm always a fan of rummaging around in the too hard box when it comes to health management. Mm. And for me, this is definitely something that I think has been in the too hard box for a long time. And I think the pandemic, from my view, coming in, mm. um, looks like it's brought these issues onto the table to be really examined Mm. Uh, and I'm a fan at the moment of keeping them on the table because this this always feels like a a wanting to push them back into the too hard box, and mm. and I'm really wanted to keep them on the table so we can really look at that. And that's what the program of works is aiming to do. Yeah. So whilst it looks very 
um, work stream focused. Mm. Ultimately, they are all overlapping. And in my mind, what I'd like to have as a vision across London is just understanding there's multiple patient pathways mm. um, th and how we can help to understand what the gaps are, mm. join up the gaps. So we've mm. got this seamless pathway, because if you think about it, if we're both in hospital mm. and we're both being discharged on the same day, the quality of clinical care we receive should not be different for either of us because you have a postcode and I don't. So yeah. in my mind, you know, it's all about, you know, what what is that clinical pathway? And mm. the postcode shouldn't have to come into it. But of course, there are implications about the fact that somebody doesn't have a postcode. So how can they be discharged? Where do they get discharged to? So mm. we still have that wraparound care. And that's that's some of the issues that we're dealing with at the moment. They are huge. They are complicated. But I think it's time to really examine this the best way we possibly can um, and and crack this nut open once and for all. So do you think that's a good, um, uh, Al, I was going to come to you next to talk about, uh, I'm going to horrify you, but I ask you to kind of really simplify what we think the major challenges to tackle in the next, let's say, 12 months might be. But the very first edition of the Healthy London podcast, we was on homeless health and it was on step down care. And I imagine someone who's been around the block once or twice, um, Al, if you don't mind me saying, this is, I imagine, what one of the uh, age old challenges are. But can we, for those listening who, you know, let's say in the middle or towards the end of a very long shift and have to discharge someone, what, 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 what can we give them here? Is there anything or is it too wicked a problem to to solve no it's not a wicked problem um okay. just a minor correction i mean the government haven't committed to end homelessness they've committed like most of the governments before them to end rough sleeping um I which apologize. is yes just, just the sort of politically distasteful front end of homelessness and as as has been pointed out you know there's um a long a long road to rough sleeping and many many other people in the queue and it's that those people who are worried about, you know, there is some progressive legislation around Homelessness Reduction Act, which should be identifying people at risk of homelessness. And we as statutory frontline providers have a duty under that act to identify people who are homeless or at risk of being homeless. And, you know, I don't know what most, I don't think, think it's really been evaluated, but I, I'm not sure most people really understand their duties under that act. Mm. Um, but going back to, you know, what, 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 what the solution might be, um, well, I mean, the solution was 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 quite clearly laid bare in March of last year when a problem that had been deemed, you know, intractable um, was solved. Mm. You know, within about three or four weeks, and people who were street homeless were housed. And I think that is something we should not lose sight of. Um, right. To make people an unconditional offer of accommodation was unprecedented mm. and you know from my personal perspective and seeing it you know from from the street and having too many conversations to remember mm. um it, it, the transformation that, that that went on when people mm. were given the dignity of their own room and their own front door and three three meals a day and you know your own toilet was mm. just absolutely mind-blowing and we should not lose sight of the fact that the um you know the basics mm. if you can put the basics in place mm. um a lot of people can you know do a lot for themselves 
at the end of the day and start to support one another and be um, mm. far more like in inverted commas normal housed people and less like um, you know stressed excluded second class citizens yeah um, and the thing that was repeated to me over and over again by people who were um, brought brought in through the everyone in program mm. was that you know they just had not had time to think mm. and going back to what Lisa was saying about you know medication um, mm. People self-medicating. If if you're on the street, it's really really stressful. It's very very insecure. Um, mm. It's physical hardship. It's cold. Um, it's wet. Um, there's no drinking. You know, there's no sink you can go and get a glass of water out of. There's no toilet. Um, mm. You're very much you know at the mercy of uh, the charity of those around you. And you know, when I stand on the street and look how people walk down the road, this is you know pre-COVID. It just became quite clear to me that you know we'd normalised large numbers of rough sleepers in all our major towns and cities, and that people had become desensitised and it was becoming normal. And that was really the you know mm. the the abhorrent consequences of just years of failed policy to allow rough sleeping to increase year on year on year for over a decade. Mm. Um, and then along comes COVID, and this intractable problem suddenly is is solvable. Um, mm. You know, uh, let's 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 give a nod where nods are due. You know, um, uh, uh, Louise Casey um, mm. did a phenomenal leadership job in terms of rallying the government into action there, and yeah. getting the various departments to speak to each other. And mm. in real terms, you know, what what's been committed in in terms of you know finances is is peanuts. And mm. it's been it's been clearly demonstrated all over the world that you know rough sleeping costs more in mm. terms of you know the knock on horrors on people's lives, use of mm. services, etc. It costs far more to have <clears throat> large numbers of rough sleepers than it would to not have large rough large numbers of rough sleepers, and consequently, mm. it's a political decision. And mm. I would like to think that we can lock in some of this sort of. Um, transformative legacy, as it were, in terms of yes, building on that unconditional offer. Yes, recognizing that actually it's quite good for your health to have your own front door and not be, you know, in a in a in 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 a very very threatening and dangerous environment. Um, it's quite good for your health to, you know, get good food and you know mm. be able to sleep. Um, the basics are really important. Yeah, and and Al, I mean, again, I'm, I'm always careful in this environment not to kind of not to oversimplify and also not to over make things sound overly positive. But I, you've been doing this work for a while, and this really has been an unprecedented move. And have you got any? I'm not making necessarily individual, for instances, but examples of people that you I don't know individual cases where people really thought behaviors may not change because they've been having such a hard time for such a long time but but that effect like you say of having your own loo having your own headspace having your own peace and quiet um I don't know I'd, a flavor from what, what what you've seen from working within the hotels and the other environments well I mean the most important um part of our service that makes it work um is the fact that a lot of people who work at the front mm. end of our service have got lived experience and yeah. we have always treasured that experience it's something we can't teach you know you, mm. you, you, you university of life is a, is a pretty pretty arduous qualification um 
and you know, to have the you know the privilege to work with people who are um, you know and such an absolute asset to the mm. NHS to to public services full stop and mm. are able to you know really bridge those sort of gaps between our rather anodyne services mm. and our scary buildings and mm -hmm. you know people who need to use those services that's mm. that's amazing yeah. but I think we're in our infancy in terms of really trying to unlock and understand the fact mm. that you know we need to give people the tools to help themselves mm. um I see most people that we work with as a resource and you know we're constantly on the hunt on the recruit for people who can come and join to be part of the solution yeah. the you know that's the reality it's not a mm. it's not, it, it, it shouldn't be reduced to this idea of a sort of you know a, asymmetrical charity um, no. the, the, the reality is we're all human beings and you know people who have experienced you know mm. real trauma in their lives and ended up on the streets mm. um, you know, I, I find many of those people to be some of the most imaginative resilient um, good humored and mm. resourceful people I've ever met in my life Absolutely. So let's um, let's start to sort of think about practical considerations for the next week, month, year. And we are in a uh, still a slightly nervous situation. But I want to bring uh, sort of maybe Al, if you can give us some summaries, and maybe Lisa come and see how we think we're going to try and help deal with that across the partnerships in London. But we are in a fragile state. I think the accommodation is still almost like month by month in terms of hotels being extended and then um, and what we may do at the end of that. Um, I, I wouldn't seek to presume, but it suddenly struck me yesterday talking to another member of the homeless health team and um, that, of course, at Christmas, we have crisis at Christmas and then Christmas finishes and people, you know, the accommodation to close again. And so that there is a, a mild precedent for this, whether any government would be brave enough to put 5,000 people back out in one hit. I know it's probably not going to be the case, but we'll see what version of that comes up. But Al, if we presume that there at least is going to be some strong moves from local authorities having to work very hard to find some accommodations in health terms, what, what what do you think we absolutely need to focus on and what, what can our kind of partners out there in primary care and secondary care and third sector, what, what, what can they take away from this? And then maybe, Lisa, if you want to come in and see what how you think that can be taken forward. So uh, Al first then. Well, I mean, in, in health terms, um, we've, we've, we've made incredible progress. The, um, you know, the idea of you know, being able to register with the GP. Yeah. is becoming far more normal um you know I, I also stress you know in terms of a health achievement you know this is by no means a you know the solution but mm -hmm. in my entire career i cannot pinpoint a a more progressive constructive and dynamic partnership between the nhs and social care partners mm -hmm. um than has happened in the last sort of 15 months this has been magical and something mm -hmm. we can't let go of yeah, it's got to be a partnership. We call it the Department of Health and Social Care. Now let's build those links. Let's let's ditch the idea of talking of it, you know, in terms of rhetoric language. Mm. It, we can make this a reality. And you know, previous government policy has really severed the sort of link between health and social care. Mm. And um, you know, this, I won't bore you with any of my political analysis in terms of what <laughs> went wrong there. But the reality is. 
you know, we can't divorce the two. The two work hand in hand. They are, they are absolutely a part of the same solution. And you know, our partners in hundreds of accommodation projects, street outreach teams, etc. Without their vigilance in terms of, you know, being able to support people to identify symptoms, support people to access vaccination, support people who are, mm. you know, truly unwell to yeah. access care and escalate care. Um, yeah. You know, we would have had a far higher mortality. And I really want to lock in that kind of relationship between we, the NHS, and our frontline social providers. And, you know, to absolutely empower them as, you know, full on partners in health. They're part of the solution as much as we are. And, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't split the two. No. Excellent. Thank you. And so, uh, Lisa, over to you. What, 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 what are we going to do? It's a big challenge. Um, how are we going to try and, um, pinpoint uh, some of that if we presume we can continue with accommodation being what it is um what do you think the well i suppose one of the big things that we're looking to achieve but also what would your thoughts advice etc be for for those out there in the health and care system not necessarily doing this on a day-to-day or everyday basis mm. yeah well I, I echo everything that al's just said um but just to add to that as well from that kind of from the management perspective, you know, we need this needs to become business as usual. You know, we need to understand, and I think there's a huge amount of amazing work that's been um, done out there. And I think it's about joining at the dots. So mm-hmm. having that kind of like pan London perspective, um, and looking at where we've got best practice and embedding it across the whole patch. So mm-hmm. it is total business as usual. Um, and you know, we shouldn't have to wait for another pandemic to be able to have another push through of transformation um you know I, and i keep coming back to that that simple pathway out of hospitals you know we've we've got discharge pathways mm. and the homeless health population discharge pathway should be exactly the same why are we still speaking about it that 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 should have been business as usual for mm. many years so i guess in terms of my health colleagues i'd like to just invite them to become a more more aware of this this subject because as a health manager for so many years, it wasn't part of my radar, and I think that's that's not right. I think it needs to be um, part of business, you know, as usual. Like I said, for all health managers to understand this patient mm. group and to embed what we're going to be working on this year into mm. all of our practices um, to make sure that this patient population are served to the best of our ability. Because you know, and somebody said to me. Last week, as I've been asking lots of questions, you know, if this is all very well having an amazing hospital, you know, sort of five star hospital that can treat very wealthy football players and, you know, mm. repair their knee. But if you do that to a veteran who's lived on the street for 20 years, then that will impress me. You know, and I think we need to look at, you know, what when we look at the patient pathway in my mind, you know, it's always looking to um, enhance and improve. Mm. the most complex patient pathway because then the majority of the other pathways above that then will be sorted out so from the healthy london partnership program this year we're definitely looking at the good work joining at the dots and aiming to make that business as usual okay and uh, before we start to wrap up i mean th- th- there's some simple stuff isn't there and again for the for the listeners we'll we'll put links in the kind of uh, notes that go with this podcast but you know if you're a gp receptionist uh, people don't need to have an address 
to to become registered for a GP. You know, there's the simple tips like using the uh, surgery address, and the, we know how busy those colleagues are. But there's simple things like that for people in secondary care. Like you say, that there's advice available, and I suppose. <laughs> No, there's a, an element of asking them to take yet another breath in another busy shift and have a look for the information and we'll do our best to kind of surface that so it's easy for them to get to to know what what to look out for what what they can do and where they can go for kind of more more support and advice um okay was on that i just wanted yeah. to jump in and just add something else before we wrap up so and i guess as well it's interesting from a primary care perspective because of course we are we are aiming to um allow everybody to have access to primary care but something that's come onto my radar recently is about screening you know and bowel screening and okay, how, yeah. how do we do that because mm. um in my mind i thought great we'll put all the tests in a gp surgery for people to access but they're all barcoded and they need to be posted out so mm. you know that that's something that we're going to be looking at over the next couple of months um so i think these 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 problems are going to bubble to the service and service and I think mm. what I what I've noticed there's a lot of goodwill and a lot of good people who mm. are looking to solve these problems. So I'm excited to see what we can achieve over the next year. Excellent, and, and that's very interesting. Well, on on fit testing, and I should give a plug for our uh, transforming cancer services team who are about to uh, produce a nice poster for to to send out to all the GP practices in London and allow them access to it, which does include some notes on what we can do for our. Uh, uh, homeless health kind of considerations as as well and I suppose that speaks to another thing of please do stay in touch well again we'll put all the contacts in the chat uh, and then and the notes on this as well so that if there are any other small practical hints and tips then uh, we'll look to you know we want to hear them and we'll we'll, we'll keep them keep them going um okay I'm going to start to wrap up there. I think we've uh, we've had a fantastic conversation and this is going to be the first of a series. So again, we want to hear from people out there. We want to know what you want to hear about and we want to carry on this kind of this kind of conversation. So I will thank Dr. Al Story from uh, Find and Treat. And I also thank Lisa Collins, our Deputy Director of Homeless Health at the Health London Partnership. I'm getting a frog in my throat. My name is James Thornton. I'm the Deputy Communications Lead at the Healthy London Partnership. Thank you very much for your time and I'll listen again soon. Thank you. Thanks Thank all. You. Bye bye. Bye.